Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 80 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes to your AirPods to give you updates of some of the latest research in clinical dermatology. And today, Michelle is going to get us rolling. All right. So to kick off the episode number 80, I mean, come on. We're going to start off with an article out of the JAD uh, by authors Flavia Carolina Pozzoborin, uh, sorry, Portobon and Evelyn Halpert. They are out of the, um, I'm going to try to do this properly, Centro de Diagnostico Dermatologico um, Bogota, Colombia. I probably said the word dermatology wrong, which is ironic. Um, so uh, both Dr. Halpert and Pozzoborin are the um, first and corresponding authors to this manuscript. So they wanted to look at the way that we approach melanonychia in children. And I think this is a great idea to look at this very specific group of people because it is one of the most challenging areas in dermoscopy, um, trying to figure out how to deal with specifically congenital lesions and especially of the nail apparatus. So they so wanted to look- So this is a combination of dermoscopy and children combining two of our favorite things. I know it's like wonder twins unite. So um, they wanted to look at the potential to develop a conservative approach for melanonychia in children. And of course, this is generally what's recommended because children, funny thing, don't enjoy painful procedures and their parents don't love things that leave them somewhat disfigured for life. So we don't want to cause nail dystrophy unnecessarily. We certainly don't want to cause distress in children unnecessarily. So they wanted to kind of assess how we could do this best. And there are a lot of arguments for why we should be able to do this. The vast majority of melanocytic neoplasia in children are benign, um, but there are occasionally worrisome lesions. You can also see occasionally the presence of melanoma-like features in the pediatric nevus of the nail apparatus, which they abbreviate NNA, which could complicate their management. And this is a topic that has not been exhaustively discussed in the literature. So it's an opportunity for greater understanding and a bit of a knowledge gap. So they looked over their records from 2008 to 2018, and they found 32 children from Columbia who had been um, assessed for melanonychia and had dermoscopic and clinical features recorded. Inclusion criteria were age less than 15 years, dermoscopic diagnosis of congenital or acquired nail, um, nail apparatus nevus, and the congenital nevus of the nail apparatus, including late onset, was defined as brown melanonychia that was appearing before three years of age. So that is how they defined their parameters for the study. They then looked at the clinical and dermoscopic features of the pediatric nevus of the nail apparatus, or NNA, uh, and they compared them to acquired NNAs. So compared to acquired nevi of the nail apparatus, the congenital nevi of the nail apparatus were found to be wider um, with a mean uh, diameter of 4.6 millimeters versus 2.5 millimeters. And we've previously discussed articles discussing the use of dermoscopy with nail apparatus melanocytic lesions. And one of the most important features in adult patients was the width of the band of pigmentation. In childhood, I think that we have to take into account the unique variables of these congenital nevi, and I think the authors do that very well here. They also found that the congenital type nevus of the nail apparatus was more likely to have irregular bands, 
47.4% of children with congenital lesions had irregular bands versus 7.7% of those with acquired nevivanale apparatus. They also found pseudo-Hutchinson sign to be more common in patients who had the congenital type nevus of the nail apparatus versus the acquired type. Pseudo-Hutchinson sign is when the pigmentation is very dark underneath the cuticle, underneath that little fold of translucent cuticular skin. And because that cuticular skin is sort of thin and doesn't have a lot of structures underneath it, you can see through that very well, fairly well, and you can see the dark color of the lesion beneath, creating that pseudo-Hutchinson sign. It's not just um, the cuticle, right? It's like the proximal nail fold. And the proximal nail fold, yeah. under there. But it's not um, actually pigmenting it in the way that you do with true Hutchinson sign, which we'll talk about here in a second. So the pseudo-Hutchinson sign, about twice as common in the congenital lesions. Um, they also found that true Hutchinson sign, true periungual pigmentation, was found only in congenital nail nevus apparatus, 31.6% versus 0% in the acquired nevi of the nail apparatus. So I think that that is a salient and important feature. So um, if you thought that Hutchinson sign was only for nail melanoma, looks like you were wrong. It can show up in congenital <laughs> nevi of the nail apparatus too. Isn't that sort of frustrating? Part of me was hoping it was sort of specific for melanoma. Well, what you find when you're studying dermoscopy and when you're a pigmented um, lesion nerd like I am, you find that the congenital lesions kind of get to break all the rules because they have sort of unique behavioral permissiveness, if you will. Their range of acceptable findings is much broader than what you would see in a lesion that was acquired later in life. Um, Certainly now, something we notice in pediatric dermatology too, when we're looking at these congenital melanocytic nevi, they seem to do all kinds of wonky things. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, you know, especially in larger lesions, it's hard when they're tiny, like just a spot on the nail. But I like to explain to residents and sometimes patients and parents that I like to remember that Assuming the pigment and lesion we're looking at right now is not currently a melanoma, which it usually isn't because it's, you know, a three centimeter congenital melanocytic nevus or whatever. If one of those cells goes bad, it's just the one cell that starts going bad and then it creates other cells that are also going bad. And so that's why dermatologists get so excited about asymmetry, because it's, there's one cell that then creates other cells like it that all comes from the same origin. And so if one part of the lesion looks markedly different than the others, that's what gets us most excited in these congenital lesions. Now, with the congenital lesions, often the pigmentation that is around the nail, um, which is a true Hutchinson sign, is more brushy. It's like a little artist's brush, just sort of lightly dusted some pigment over the peripheral areas of the um, periungal skin versus with true Hutchinson sign. Well, they're both true Hutchinson sign, but with Hutchinson sign associated with melanoma, the pigmentation tends to be much more chunky, much more um, sharply demarcated, and you are more likely to see the parallel ridge pattern with a melanoma creating a Hutchinson sign than you are with a congenital nevus creating a Hutchinson sign. More frequently with Hutchinson sign with a congenital nevus, you'll see that brushy pigmentation often in the parallel furrow pattern, which is usually associated with benign findings. You can see though parallel ridge pattern adjacent to congenital nevi under certain circumstances. That would certainly raise my um, hockles a little bit. I would pay a little bit more um, rapt attention to that type of lesion, but this is an important differentiating point and it highlights this very well in their literature. Now, something interesting that came forward from this, which makes sense when you think about it, is that triangular sign was actually observed in about 20% of both types of the nevi, either acquired 
or congenital nevi of the nail apparatus. There was really no difference between the two groups. And I think this is very unique to the pediatric population. So if you have a triangular area of pigmentation, and to be clear, the base of that triangle sits on the cuticle and is pointing towards the free edge of the nail. So the tip, the narrow part, is pointing towards the tip of the nail, and the base of that triangle would sit on the cuticle. The reason triangular sign is most likely observed more frequently in children is that it is an indication of growth, right? So if you start off with something that's very narrow and it's pigmenting the nail, and then because this is a child and children tend to have things grow, um, as that lesion grows and gets wider, that band of pigmentation gets wider and you end up with more of a triangular shape to the pigment band. In an adult, that would be very worrisome because that would indicate recent growth. In a child, that can be more acceptable because their nevi are supposed to grow. It's similar to the fact that we accept the peripheral globular pattern of um, nevi on usually truncal skin in young patients because that is an indicator of growth. So we accept that in patients who are under the age of 30. Usually you see these in like teenagers and early 20s, a little bit more commonly in my experience in young women. Um, but that's a perfectly acceptable pattern in a young person. Same exact lesion in a 60-year-old gets very worrisome because that's an indicator of growth. And by the time we reach about our 35th-ish birthday, our nevi should kind of stop growing and you know, we should sort of have a, a state of stability. We all hope we're a little bit more stable by the age of 35. Some of us don't quite get there, but most of us do, hopefully. So that was interesting to me that the triangular sign was actually identical between the two groups. There was zero difference between the two groups. So they again, had... if you thought that was specific for melanoma of the nail, again, you are disappointed. But only with children. If you see it in an adult, in an adult for the love of God, figure out what's going on with that nail. And I apologize for that. For the love of all things that are good in the world. Please do um, follow up on that. So they also looked at the inter-rater observer correlation and they had moderate to good agreement for the dermoscopic variables. Out of the 32 patients that they found in their records, they had 16 that they had monitored over time um, with a mean follow-up of just a little bit over a year. And they found that increased width and new structures with dynamic changes were observed, again, somewhat expectedly because these are children. Biopsies were only performed in two patients, which is kind of goals when you're dealing with young children. You want to minimize the number of procedures if you can. Um, so only two of these 32 patients underwent a skin biopsy, and that revealed uh, melanocytic nevus of the nail matrix. So in previous reports, there have been an assessment of benign dermoscopic acral patterns for periangle pigmentation in congenital melanonychia. Also in other studies, Hutchinson sign and other melanoma-like features have been observed in the pediatric nevus of the nail apparatus. So I think that bringing that knowledge forward to help avoid unnecessary procedures and also potentially distress in these young patients is a good idea. Now, this has the limitations of being a retrospective analysis, and it has a relatively small sample size. They also are limited by only having two cases that were confirmed by pathology, but they did find significant difference between the congenital and acquired nail um, nevi in children, and they found substantial changes during follow-up in both groups, both acquired and congenital. Dynamic changes of melanocytic nevi at other anatomic sites are also seen in childhood, so this isn't unexpected. And they agree that you know evolution of pediatric nevus of the nail apparatus over time is not surprising. So it is a good idea to kind of get that history. Um, is this a lesion that are presented in the first three years of life? Because it can present with melanoma-like dermoscopic features. And you want to, of course, conduct a thorough clinical history um, we talked about the power of anamnesis, like the, the power of the story in, a, in the patient's care, um, careful examination during dermoscopy, and then follow up with digital dermoscopy, which I highly recommend 
A picture is worth a million words in my particular, in my personal opinion. And having that ability to go back and look at the picture and see how the lesion has changed over time, I think can help uh, avoid unnecessary biopsies that could cause distress as well as nail dystrophy. And then they, of course, advocate as any good author should for further research and recommend um, approach to the specific criteria for pediatric melanoma of the nail apparatus with, of course, more research hopefully to be conducted in the future. And they very nicely thanked the people who referred them patients, which I thought was a lovely touch. So nice article. I thought it was very well written and a interesting and important topic to look into. Of course, what we want is to compare various causes of longitudinal melanonychia that are benign to melanoma of the nail apparatus, but we just don't have enough melanomas, I think, to figure that out. The article that you referenced before, we had discussed back in demo episode number three. Um, and it was a great article. And there were a few things that were sort of statistically significant to make it more likely that a band of longitudinal melanonychia represents melanoma as opposed to something benign. Um, the width, as you mentioned, is important. So 40% or higher of the width of the nail plate, if that's occupied by longitudinal melanonychia, that was associated with an increased risk that it was melanoma. But they also had some melanomas that were less than 30%. So it's not 100%, I guess you could say. <laughs> also, well, in this, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. And so that width thing really applies to acquired nevi. And so that's an important piece of history to pick up. And this article that you just discussed mm -hmm. has a bunch of nevi or a bunch of longitudinal melanonychia. Now, there's a lot of causes for longitudinal melanonychia. So you might say, well, how do these authors know that the longitudinal melanonychia they looked at were nevi of the nail apparatus and not physiologic melanonychia or some other cause of melanonychia? And the answer seems to be because they're super good at nail unit melanonychia and dermoscopy and stuff. I think maybe if this were not a letter to the editor, but a little bit of a longer article, they would have explained their reasoning there. But it's certainly possible that some of the things that they called nevi are actually some other cause of longitudinal melanonychia. And also, it's frustrating that the main takeaway seems to be that we're just screwed. There doesn't <laughs> seem to be anything specific to tell if a longitudinal melanonychia band is melanoma or not because you got these congenital nevi that grow and change and can look really weird they have pictures like this nevus that was biopsy proven of the nail looks way different 18 months later than it did originally and some melanomas grow that slowly so if the history is good like this was not there when i was a kid and it's growing fairly rapidly then that's pretty concerning but anything else is really tough well, and I think, you know, because I'm a pathologist, I'm used to these multiple variables you have to take into consideration together. And any single thing by itself, you can't hang a diagnosis on, right? So dermatopathologists are always looking for the holy grail stain, right? And so we have been through this, this cycle of, you know, anticipation and hopefulness and, and optimism, and then followed by gradual disappointment with multiple immunostains and, and other tests over the years. For example, you know, people used to think that, you know, HMB 45 was kind of the it new thing. And you could definitely differentiate between benign and malignant lesions with this HMB 45. And then, of course, the exceptions begin to present themselves. And, you know, similar things have happened over the years with even, you know, even stains that are as impressively accurate as something like Prame, there are still some little chinks in the armor for that particular stain. There are things that'll slip by or things that'll stain that may not be so worrisome or things that'll stain that we don't understand why. So I think that this really just goes back to the art of medicine. And it actually gives me like reassurance that our continued presence as healthcare um, kind of 
advocates for our patients is very important because it really takes the intelligence of a person who's trained to look at all of these different findings and put them together with the patient who's in front of them and make a decision with that person over a period of time about how they're going to take care of them. So, you know, while I wish that there was a, if it's this, do that thing, and if it's this, do that thing algorithm, I think that, you know, understanding the nuance of how these things present and then understanding why they might be different, like the triangular sign presenting in children and being acceptable under that circumstance because children's melanocytic nevi are allowed to grow versus an adult patient who really should have stabilized their melanocytic nevi by um, mid-adulthood. I think that that kind of art of medicine thing is one of the reasons why, you know, our patients will always need us. So um, I think, of course, we always want to improve and kind of clarify the resolution of our knowledge about this. And it's always going to be something that's in progress. I'm also grateful to see people are starting to look more at acral lesions with dermoscopy and, of course, clinical findings in patients with skin of color. And there are specific caveats that apply to assessing those patients as well. For example, a uniform and otherwise um, symmetric lesion that has the parallel ridge pattern can be acceptable in darker phototypes. And it just has to do with the optical properties of melanin under that unique circumstance. So I think that as we begin to understand this better, we'll be able to take even more specialized and individualized care of our patients. So the good news is I think that this makes it hard for human beings to be replaced with, you know, machinery or things that might be able to make binary choices more simply. So I actually think it helps us improve our knowledge, but I do wish that we had like an easy yes, no answer for the patient's sake. As another brief tangent, you mentioned this ridges and furrows thing. Uh, this ridges are risky, furrows are friendly thing is related to pigment patterns on acral surfaces and whether or not you should be worried. I have a hard time remembering which one is the ridge and which one is the furrow, so I came up with another one. Narrow is nice, wide is worrisome. So okay, if I like that. Spot, that's nice, and if it's in the wider areas, that's worrisome. You are a gentleman and a scholar, Luke. All right. Well, history is super important for this next condition we're going to talk about, too. It's called the journal is JAD Case Reports, and the title of the article is Artifactual Pseudochylitis, a case series of an underreported condition. The authors are out of Johns Hopkins and include Austin Burns and Seema Rosati, among others. So I had never heard the term exfoliative, exfoliative chylitis. But ah. it is an entity of constantly peeling lips. We get a lot of that underlying... in Lubbock, Texas. What's that? I said, well, I, we just have a lot of dry skin in Lubbock. That makes a lot of sense. It's often due <laughs> to an underlying inflammatory disorder. However, there's a factitial version. And we know factitial Ooh. is like things people are doing to themselves. And these authors here argue for a different version, an artifactual pseudochylitis version that they say is different from the factitial version primarily because of the amount of stress it causes. So they say that people with the factitial exfoliative chylitis who are just sort of picking at their own lips aren't particularly bothered by it. But these, quote, artifactual pseudochylitis patients who might be subconsciously picking at their lips, basically, are really bothered by it. And that's how they draw the distinction between artifactual and factitial. And this artifactual pseudochylitis thing seems to be related to psychiatric comorbidities or psychosocial stress, and perhaps due to unconscious manipulation of the lips during times of stress. Like you can imagine people biting on their lips or picking at their lips or doing other things to their lips, I guess. Bacteria and yeast can often be cultured in this condition and they contribute so patients may partially improve with antibiotics and antifungals. 
as happened with a lot of their people in their case series. It's a case series of five patients with this condition, age 20 to 30, so young adults who fall into this category. Clinical findings included obvious thick white scales in the vermilion lips and puckering of the lips. Several times they referred to distinctive puckering, which apparently another author has dubbed the protrusion sign. So look us in the photographs like the these patients are sort of getting ready to give somebody a kiss, but you know, it's only in the first 10 to 20% of kissability. There are symptoms that also <laughs> often been present for one or more years and they had seen multiple providers. So sort of a hard thing to diagnose, a hard thing to get behind and patients are kind of desperate to get it figured out. A thorough history, which was emphasized as important in this study, revealed various psychiatric and psychosocial stressors that often coincided with the onset of their chylitis, though the patients generally denied actually picking or chewing at their lips or anything. But they tended to get better with saline soaks, tacrolimus ointment twice a day, petroleum jelly, and most importantly, attention to their psychosocial and psychiatric issues. Perhaps with SSRIs, according to this article, I wonder if at least some of those SSRIs were actually prescribed by their dermatologist, watching videos to help them de-stress or simply a good therapeutic relationship. Hmm. See, again, so, art of medicine. Yeah. So the authors highlight this entity in order to avoid unnecessarily invasive investigation and emphasize the importance of a thorough history and building a therapeutic rapport. And they also point out that identifying normal underlying tissue decreases the need for invasive diagnostic workup. I'm not sure I've seen this condition before, but if I do, then I will try to get behind it and um, not have to put people through lip biopsies and such like. I like that, Luke. I think that's awesome. You know, if you if you want to give more than lip service, ha 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 ha. Good, good. I'm glad you got there. Aren't aren't you proud of me? Like, I mean, it took it took it was a long walk. It was a long walk. But um, if you want to give more than lip service to the the chylitis, I think also you know thinking about um, places where it's encountered. But I do like the discussion about that. I find that there's a similar analog to the people who pick at their foot skin. You know that they're very disturbed by the appearance of their foot skin. Tell me more about this. Well, you know, this is uh, artifactual pseudo footitis. Yes. Um, I, I feel like I probably see this more than you do, but we have a population of people here in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas, who like to wear sandals literally all year round, like even when it actually is very cold here. And those patients tend to have a really impressive um, hyperkeratinization of the plantar foot, and often there's fissuring and stuff. And some of those patients will have quite the um, pastime where they kind of pick the dead skin and try to tear it off. And then you have all these like kind of ripped lines in the in the bottom of the foot. So I wonder if there's an analog to that. People do it to their hands too. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, we got uh, nails and lips. So if we really want to look good, I guess we should talk about hair as well. Are you ready for some hair raising discussion? You know I am. All right. So we have an article here out of the Australasian Journal of Dermatology. And the authors are Michael Kasprak and Rodney Sinclair. That Sinclair, is, like from the Sinclair hair scale? I, I think that I think it might be the same as Sinclair because, in fact, the first citation in this article is the paper that created that um, Sinclair scale, which first was reported in 2005 in the um, Journal of Investigative Dermatology by Dr. Sinclair and first, first author Gann, Dr. Gann. So um, they wanted to look at a way to correlate 
quantitative and qualitative findings with each other in the art of caring for patients who have hair loss. So they wanted to define a trichoscopy-derived Sinclair scale to enhance visual assessment through quantitative trichoscopy. Um, these authors are out of Warsaw, Poland, and Melbourne and Victoria, Australia. And they looked at the Sinclair scale, which has been used since 2005 to help us define female pattern hair loss and stage it. It is used by clinical exam. It's a visual evaluation of the skin of the scalp with central hair parting. And then you look at the width of that part. This is relatively quickly performed using sort of like a visual analog scale where you have pictures that are representative of the different Sinclair scales, one being a normal scalp and five being almost completely bald. But of course, remember that this is a female pattern hair loss. So most even severe female pattern hair loss patients will have a sprinkling of terminal hairs left in the area where they've had otherwise severe hair loss. So they wanted to see if it was possible to correlate the instrument um, scoring of the scalp that's interrogated using sort of video trichoscopy to help to characterize and classify these patients. And the Sinclair scale traditionally is not used with any optical instrumentation, um, so it is sort of a bit of a gestalt measurement, although I will tell you that hair specialists, and I've had the privilege to work with several of them, including Dr. Wilma Bergfeld, who is very well known in the hair loss community, uh, a respected and, and experienced hair loss specialist, I think, can estimate a Sinclair scale quite accurately. But the ability to have quantitative as well as qualitative data, I think, is more satisfying as well as potentially more accurate in interpreting patients' response to therapy and things like that. So they took patients with different stages of androgenetic alopecia, and they evaluated them using both the clinical Sinclair scale and quantitative as well as qualitative trichoscopy. They didn't, then did a correlation analysis between the Sinclair scale and the different parameters that came from statistical analysis of trichoscopic images, and they developed a novel parameter. So this novel parameter is cumulative hair thickness density. So to understand cumulative hair thickness density, I would like you, Luke, in your mind's eye to imagine a white, completely empty field. Okay. Wait, I'm still trying to come up with the acronym. Cumulative hair thickness, so C-H-T-D. yes. And it uses quantitative and qualitative trichoscopy. Yes. So trichoscopy is like dermoscopy for hair. Mm -hmm. So quantitative would mean like you count the hairs, and qualitative would mean like you look at them and make some sort of character judgment about them. I, th I think, yes, both of those things. The um, nice thing, though, about having the quantitative da data is you can interpret... Um, you know, longitudinal response to therapy, I think, with more accuracy. And the devices are actually able to analyze the image and then calculate the diameter of the individual hairs and then add them together. Wait, so, wait, there's some kind of fancy device that does this. It's there not is. me or my research assistants who are doing it. There is a fancy device that does this. It's called the Trico Lab. They mentioned that later. I've actually registered with the company so that I can figure out how much it costs because I'm very, very curious. But so far, they have not reviewed and approved my medical license. So it might take a little while to, to get that information. I might have to update our, our lovely listeners with that later. Um, I assume yes, there's so, a conflict of interest here then. You know, I think that there might be. Um, I don't see the specific lab listed, but I don't know who the manufacturer of it is. Um, the senior author, as you might presume from somebody as influential in this field as the person who created the Sinclair scale, um, he has numerous conflicts of interest or um, has provided professional services, I should say, which could potentially even present the appearance of a conflict of interest. It doesn't necessarily mean we are accusing him of this, but he seems to have a professional services 
contributed to about 20 different companies that are operative in the dermatologic field. And so the okay. Trico Lab is by um, is from Germany, but I don't see that it has the specific manufacturer. Sorry to interrupt. I'm now imagining a blank white field. Yes, you're imagining a blank white field. So if you conceptualize the idea of cumulative hair thickness density, you can imagine that you could fill that space in, taking up the same amount of volume with a lot of very small circles, right? Or a few very large circles. And okay. that sort of kind of correlates with the fact that a person, if you're looking at scalp coverage, a person that had a low hair diameter, right, but a lot of hair, that person might have the same scalp coverage as a person who has less hair, but thicker hair fibers, right? So thick, the thicker, thicker hair shafts. So, so what you, kind you of, want are the thicker hair shafts, I would well, guess. Well, what you want is good coverage. You know, the thickness of your hair shaft is largely determined by genetics and there's a significant interplay with um, ethnic ancestry. You know, patients from different parts of the world evolved in different climates where different hair types were potentially more or less advantageous. And so you might see this, you know, play through different populations with different thicknesses as well as densities of hair. But the interesting thing about this cumulative hair thickness density is that it's actually able to equalize across those different patient populations with different types of hair to look at the key variable of basically scalp coverage, which is really what patients are concerned about when they're losing their hair. They're worried that people can see their scalp through their hair. And that's why the hair camouflage products tend to work re reasonably well. Things like Topix or um, the Viviscal hair fibers, something called Exfusion. There's another one called Hairfinity. There's a lot of these, but they're basically keratin that's been dyed to match different hair colors and given an electrostatic charge. So it sticks to the existing hair shafts, just like how we can make our hair kind of pop up and stick a balloon with static. We can also stick things to our hair with static forces. And that's how those hair powders work, again, to provide coverage of the scalp because the perception then is that the patient has thicker hair. Now I understand why I always find all these dirt and sand in my daughter's scalp. She's not just playing on the playground. She's trying to disguise any areas of thinner hair she might have. Ah, the woes of a dermatologist child. They are covered in sunscreen from the day they're born. And now your poor little baby daughter's using hair camouflage powder. Just kidding. So cumulative hair thickness density is the measurement that they have developed out of this. And they found that it had a very good correlation between that Sinclair scale that was previously defined by Dr. Sinclair in 2005 and this new parameter, the cumulative hair thickness density. Um, the quality of correlation was sufficient actually to allow the estimation of Sinclair scale solely from the cumulative hair thickness density number, which is pretty significant um, that a single variable there could help us to envision the amount of scalp coverage that the patient has. So I thought that that was pretty nice. They had 290 female patients and 90 male patients that were um, examined in the course of this study. And they did the visual Sinclair scale as well as the calculated parameters from the TricoLab device on all patients. They looked at a number of variables, including hair density, average hair thickness, follicular unit density, cum and cumulative hair thickness density. The only parameter that actually correlated significantly with the Sinclair scale was this cumulative hair thickness density. And I think it's because it equalizes across, you know, a patient who has, let's say, I don't know, 500,000 hairs on their head and they're only a millimeter wide versus a person that has 250,000 hairs on their head, but they're two millimeters wide. Those people have, you know, a similar density uh, or a similar cumulative hair thickness density because of 
those variables um, kind of causing the same level of coverage of the scalp, if that makes sense. So that was the only variable that was able to account for everything, but it makes sense because it's derived from other variables. So it's taking more things into account at the same time, because it's really sort of a function of density and thickness, if that makes sense. And so I thought that that was very nice. They were also able even to calculate the distance from the part line that you would need for 50% hair coverage, which was one over the cumulative hair thickness density. I thought that was very interesting. And they have some lovely trichoscopic and clinical images, as well as a nice um, schematic hair parting plot to show us the benefit of how much coverage the patient gets and how visual the scalp is through it. So I thought this was very nicely done and a good development in the ongoing fight to help us combat the progressive alopecia that would plague, if you're honest, most adults at some point in their life. In episode 60, we discussed an article about men who can get the female pattern of androgenetic alopecia, which I think is why there were some men included in this study, because you can still use the Sinclair grading system if they have the female sort of pattern of hair loss to grade how bad it is. So is the story here, Michelle, that if I'm super interested in hair loss, I should go buy one of these Tricholab devices and then use that for research or to monitor patients' progress? I think if you had a hair center and um, you really focused your practice on this, that it would be worth your while. I don't exactly know the price of the device. And I also can tell from the website that there is a fee per service. So I think there's not just the purchase of the device, but also there's a charge each time that it is used. And I don't know exactly what that cost is. So you would have to potentially build that into your practice or build that into the cost of your service, or it would be something that you um, include without you know, having to say, well, this is this much extra. It's just part of whatever treatment package that you're providing. Um, but I do think that it would help, especially if you were doing research or if you're trying to demonstrate benefit to the patient over time who really needs that um, hard data. Now, I'll, I'll tell you as a person who's a pretty big hair nerd myself, I would love to have this device. I would like to know how much it costs. Um, I think it would be very useful to have. I do think the clinical assessment of the patient as well as the patient's own interpretation of their progress is often a very useful variable. And I'll find that most patients are generally able to tell when their hair is recovering. And for most patients, I would say that their satisfaction kind of parallels their actual improvement as, me as measured by clinical assessment. There are patients, though, who will come back and you can tell they're twice they're, they have twice as much hair as the last time that you saw them, but still don't think that they're growing hair because it happened gradually. And for some people, they don't really notice gradual changes. In that circumstance, I think this would be fantastic to have because then you could say, well, not only have you improved, but you've improved by this much, you know, percentage points or something, give them hard statistical data. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm probably not going to buy one of these devices, but I do like making people's hair loss better. We've talked about androgenetic alopecia a fair amount on this podcast. And I think one reason is because it's a frustrating condition for patients that is common and that hasn't had good treatments. But I think over the course of the you know, past two and a half years of doing this podcast, stuff like minoxidil and spironolactone and finasteride and viviscal have you know shown like they can really help. So I like the fact that we can help people. And so I'm interested in treating patients with hair loss because I think there are things that can be done for it. So as somebody who's interested in helping people with hair loss, but is not going to buy a Tricholab device, perhaps <laughs> the most important takeaway from this article is that it kind of reemphasizes that this Sinclair hair scale is probably pretty good because it correlates with sort of more technical findings as well. Like 
findings on trichoscopy. I like it. All right. We talked about nails. We talked about lips. We talked about hair. No, we haven't talked about skin. What, what the heck? What? So we're dermatologists. How dare we call ourselves dermatologists? Talk about some skin and uh, the sun. So I'm going to talk about this article from the JAD called Public Misperceptions of Common Sunscreen Labeling Claims, a survey study from the Minnesota State Fair. The authors are Lindsay Voller and Ingrid Polkari. So these are guys from the University of Minnesota. They hung around at the Minnesota State Fair in 2019. Good timing there. I'm going to guess there was not a Minnesota State Fair in 2020. And they administered <laughs> surveys to about 500 adults about sunscreens. And they found lots of misunderstandings about sunscreen. Michelle, mm-hmm. I find that you often kind of ask me questions or pimp me on this podcast. As if I'm still <laughs> one of your residents. So Old now it's my turn. Hard, Luke, I'm sorry. I'm, it's my turn now. The circle is now complete. So Revenge. <laughs> Here are the questions that were on the survey, and you guys at home can quiz yourselves too. Hopefully, we're all pretty good at it, but there are actually some things that I didn't know. So these are things that you can find labeled on a sunscreen. So for example, if the sunscreen says sensitive skin, what does Mm -hmm. that mean, Michelle? I don't know that that has an official definition. Um, I think that it is a way that sunscreens are marketed and they are intended to be used for people who have more sensitive skin. So they might, in some circumstances, have less allergenic sunscreen ingredients like physical sunscreens, either zinc or titanium dioxide. But I don't know that it has a generally accepted um, and fixed meaning. Well, then allow me to teach you something. Apparently it does. Ah, I'm excited. Avoids the use of common irritants. Okay, I mean, it's kind of like what you said, Um, but you bring up a really good point that a number of claims don't actually have any any requirement for the manufacturer to prove whatever they say. And so it is just marketing, which is sort of the main point here. We'll get to those a little bit later. Okay, what does it mean if it says water resistant? Water resistant. Okay, this there's actually a number of minutes that it has to stay on the skin in water. I think it's 40 but I'm not they actually positive. didn't mention that specifically here either, but they just said protects while swimming or sweating. So it's water resistant. And then there's, it used to be called waterproof, but I think they changed it to very water resistant or something. And I think that was 80 minutes, but I'll look it up. Uh, those are my memories of the minutes as well. What okay. if it says extended protection? So to me, that means it's probably something like the helioplex or something. Or no, no, wait, wait. Extended protection probably has to do with visible light. It says it maintains it? protection for over two hours, hmm. which is a little Extended bit offensive because we tell people to put sunscreen oh, on every two hours. So yeah. I don't quite know how you get there. The mineral-based sunscreens, you know, they don't get used up like the chemical ones, but they can be wiped away or sweated away or whatever. Mm-hmm. Non-comedogenic, I'll just let you know, avoids the use of common irritants is what they say. We feel like probably doesn't form acne. If it says sport, again, it protects while swimming or sweating. Okay. Which of the following does a broad spectrum sunscreen protect against? UVA, UVB, UVC, or all of the above? I believe it's supposed to be all of the above. I remember many diagrams with overlapping sort of sign curves showing the different effectiveness of the different sunscreen ingredients and providing an even level of coverage. Is that right? Apparently, it's only UVA and UVB. But well, UVC you didn't give is me a UVA and UVB. What's that? That was, not a, that was not a question choice. 
You had all that, of the above or them individually. Oh, uh, that's true. Okay, so we'll give you <laughs> points for that one. But apparently it doesn't protect against UVC, but I believe UVC enters the Earth's atmosphere in such a small amount it's, that it's probably yeah, not a factor. It's, it's filtered by the ozone, um, so we don't get UVC here um, on the planet unless it's being used for sterilization procedures. Um, there was some concern about overzealous ad adoption of UVC radiation for the um, contamination of surfaces during the pandemic. Some people were installing um, UVC lights into certain areas to try to sterilize things. And there was concern about the exposure of human eyes and skin to that UVC radiation without you know, protection. All your broad spectrum sunscreen in the world is not going to protect you against that UVC. Exactly. Okay. Sun protection factor refers to the sunscreen protection against UVA, UVB, UVC, or some combination of the above. UVB, because the way that they find it is how long it takes the skin to burn. And that's actually a fraction. Um, you have to calculate the SPF, but it's how long I think the patient would take to burn without any sunscreen, or with the sunscreen divided by without the sunscreen or something along those lines. Um, but it, it basically is only parameter for UVB. We don't actually, I think, have a measurement that we quantify for UVA. You are exactly right. And if you were taking the survey, only 12% of people would have also gotten it exactly right. So this is an area of public misunderstanding about sunscreen. So the SPF applies only to UVB. So it's also got to say broad spectrum if you want to protect against UVA, which you probably do. All right. What if it? What does it mean if it says natural or organic? This is also multiple choice. Ah, okay. okay. What are my choices? Your choices are product is chemical free. The main sun protecting chemical is plant based. The product is biodegradable and environmentally friendly or none of the above. And what was the moniker that was given to this? Natural or organic. Because if it's USDA organic, it has different criteria that are actually quite stringent. But if it just says organic or natural, huh. I mean, that might be one of those things that's also a marketing thing where it's basically like whatever the company says about it. Hopefully it would be biodegradable and environmentally friendly, although it's, you know, hard to say what market, what if it's not labeled specifically by the FDA and controlled, people can put whatever they want to on there. Yep, that is exactly right. It doesn't mean anything. Same yeah. thing if it says baby or safe for children. Doesn't mean anything. That was my concern as well. <laughs> All right. We'll just roll through the rest of these real quick. So they had some true or false ones like SPF 60 offers twice as much protection as SPF 30. That's false. Oh, yeah. Do you know how to deal with that? Say again. Do you know how to deal with that? How to deal with it. How, or how, how, to how that actually affects things. Like the... It is diminishing returns. It is diminishing returns. Yeah. And, you know, with, with sunscreens also, how thickly you apply them also matters because the thickness that it's used for in the studies where you get the label from is typically about twice as thick as most human beings will apply it. And when you put on half as much sunscreen as the density that it's studied at, you don't get half of the protection. You actually get the square root of the protection. So an SPF of 25 becomes an SPF of 5 if you're not applying it sort of aggressively, which is why one of the reasons why we urge patients to use the highest SPF sunscreen that they can use easily. Some other misperceptions that were common among the people answering the survey, for example, is that FDA testing is required to prove that a sunscreen is hypoallergenic, also false, or that something that says dermatologist recommended or clinically proven is endorsed by the American Academy of Dermatology. Of course, that's not true. So that's the story. And I guess the most the, the big takeaway here is that people just don't know what the heck is going on on sunscreen labels. So we want perhaps... 
the government to step in and try to clarify things like they have done in the past. Sunscreens and sun protection and tanning beds seem to be kind of the whipping boy in government because somehow both Republicans and Democrats can get behind hating on them or creating more requirements for them, which I guess is okay because they should be clear, but so should lots of things in life. And this just happens to be one that somehow is bipartisan. I wonder if the most important points of misunderstanding here are the various claims that don't require FDA approval and, in fact, have no particular way to verify their veracity. So, like, be for children or for babies or natural, organic, dermatologist-approved stuff. I mean, I titled this in my own little uh, electronic device here, Sunscreen Companies Are Liars, but that's probably not (laughs) fair. I mean, maybe some of them are, but I feel like... I mean, I like sunscreen companies because I like sunscreen. So probably they actually do something to make sure their product is sort of hypoallergenic or probably safe for babies or whatever. So I don't want to say they're just liars and they just write stuff on there to sell more product. But the business of business is business. So it also wouldn't surprise me if that was true in at least some cases. So I do wonder if we should disallow such claims or require a more thorough vetting process. And finally, and pleasantly, a history of prior sunscreen counseling or a visit to a dermatologist was associated with increased understanding of sunscreen. So what we say does actually get through and matters to patients. Yay, that makes me happy to hear. It's always nice to know that our work matters, right? This is episode 80. So we have a long tradition on this podcast. Every 10th episode, we have what we like to call a clip show where we briefly review what we have learned over the past 10 episodes, so that in case you want to go back and listen to them again, you'll know what you're in for, or if you missed any of them, here's a quick recap. You ready for this clip show, Michelle? I'm born ready, my friend. We're starting from the like lower numbers, right? Back in episode 71. This was kind of an experimental episode. Uh, Michelle wasn't available Maybe you were out with COVID. I know that happened at some I, point. I, I, I was out with COVID. That was that, that was that episode. So rather than just me talking by myself, which would be horrible for everybody, except <laughs> maybe for me, we put together a clip show, basically. So right now we're in a clip show about a clip show. And, you know, you know, the series is about to go off the air if that's happening. But this particular oh, episode, we included articles about hydradenida separativa. So it was like a a theme episode. So we brought back some of our discussions that we had done from previous episodes about hydradenida separativa. So this was the best of HS volume one. We talked about some consensus guidelines about hydradenida separativa that I have been using ever since we discussed it. And my patients with hydradenida separativa use things like metformin and spironolactone and sometimes prednisone tapers for flares. We talked about how pain perception differs in hydradenida separativa and how patient's description of their pain might influence what sorts of pharmaceutical therapies might help them get better. So if they say that pain is burning, it might be different than if their pain is stabbing, for example. We also talked about a study that intralesional triamcinolone was no better than placebo in treating HS lesions. And the senior author on that was Chris Syed, an HS expert who also joined us and talked more about hydradenida separativa. So if you're Wanting to learn more about HS, what a great episode that would be. Episode 71. Awesome sauce. All right, so picking things up here with episode 72. It's my turn, right? It is your turn. Awesome sauce. Okay, so we first talked about premature graying of the hair. This is a very interesting article talking about risk factors for premature graying. It was out of New South Wales, Australia. 
And they found that it was more common in patients who had a family history of the disorder, of course, also having a um, personal history of vitiligo or atopic dermatitis, and bizarrely, the frequent use of hair gels, which I wondered if that wasn't related to hair type. You know, um, certain hair textures actually are more likely to require a reining in with hair gel. And I wonder if that has to do with the um, rate at which people develop canities or gray hair. And remember, correlation, not causation. So maybe yes. people who go gray earlier like to use hair gels to make their hair look cool despite the fact that it's gray or something. And then we had the first segment in our mini-series of allergen alternatives where we discussed that one of the best ways to treat contact allergy is avoidance, but patients can't you know, always forego everything that they're allergic to. Like if a patient's allergic to common toothpaste ingredient, it'd be nice if they could brush their teeth with something or if they have an allergy to a shampoo ingredient. You know, people generally like to keep their scalp clean, most people. So they talked about safe um, personal care options and the ingredient database programs that are um, very helpful to assess that. They also talked about the American Contact Alternative Group, um, which has specific safe alternatives for the 80 allergens that are on the standard panel. Um, following that, we had an article we kind of subtitled Find Your Muse and the Effect of Fibroblasts on Atopic Dermatitis, which was very interesting. In this article, they discussed the fact that these muse cells could potentially alleviate scratching symptoms, reduce epidermal inflammation, and promote wound healing. And they might also help um, improve and promote the migration of proliferation and proliferation of keratinocytes. So these may become a new therapeutic target for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And anytime we find a new target for something, I get a little bit excited about it because often that means we're coming at it from a way that maybe might have a different um, either side effect profile or a different level of efficacy or might best suit a certain group of patients. Muse also, cells are some type of fancy stem cell, by the way. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, we also talked about ketotifen and famotidine for melasma. So as we know, um, there is a sort of blood clotting axis that runs into melasma. And of course, melasma is both a pigmentary and vascular disorder. Um, we also know that in the sort of elaboration of plasmin and plasminogen and things like that, the keratinocytes actually um, start to make some cytokines that might cause an increase in pigmentation, um, specifically some prostaglandins. And so they found that ketotifen actually redu reduced or decreased the release of bioactive mediators like histamine, leukotrienes, and proteases, and maybe a treatment for photoaging since it prevents mast cell deposition, degranulation, and skin thickening and wrinkles. Um, and skin thickening usually sounds like a good thing, but here we're talking more about that dermatoheliosis type of skin where it looks more like kind of leather um, than, you know, normal skin. So it's not the kind of thickening you want. Um, and they looked at this in UV irradiated hair hairless mice and were able to find that ketotifen along with famotidine, which is an H2 receptor antagonist, suppress the histamine mediated melanogenesis and dendricity that happens in human melanocytes. And um, that they don't have any kind of, you know, uh, effect on H1 or H3 specifically when they're looking at these in vivo studies. But I thought this was an interesting potential target for melasma and potentially could be beneficial also when you're using it after a, a therapeutic intervention like a chemical peel. We talked about how neurofibromatosis type 1 is an inherited disease that actually contributes to economic inequality. I thought this was a very unique perspective on this article to discuss the fact that a hereditary disease might actually convey worse economic well-being over several generations and consideration maybe to how we take care of these patients and support them um, through the course of their life living with a chronic disease. We finally talked about trichodysplasia spinulosa dermoscopy. 
So of course I love this article because I'm a dermoscopy nerd. Trichodysplasia spinulosa is a condition that can occur due to a polyomavirus infection of hair follicles and tends to present itself in the setting of immune suppression or deficiency. And the dermatoscopy revealed perifollicular hyperpigmentation with central white circles and bright white spicules, which of course correlate to the modified hair fibers. And that histopathologic examination showed the dilated hair follicle with keratin plugging and an increase in trichohyalin granules with sparse perivascular mononuclear cell infiltrate in the superficial dermis. So I thought it was nice to have a, a trichoscopic and histologic finding correlation for this particular article based off dermoscopy. This is probably a good time to mention that if you want to listen to any of these other episodes, you can find our archives anywhere you get your podcasts, like Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, where you can listen to all this stuff, and you can also find links to all of these original articles, such as the articles in episode 73, which is one of my favorite articles, one of my favorite episodes of all time. It was all about itchy things, mostly atopic dermatitis, but we brought in itch expert Dr. Sean Quatra to discuss some of his CME articles in the JAD about itch and his approach. Um, Some of the highlights that came out were even if a patient doesn't have overt atopic dermatitis, if their eosinophil count is high, then they might still respond to dupilumab. And if that is not the case, then you might consider a gabapentinoid instead. We talked about some clinical trials for atopic dermatitis, including about some medications that have recently been approved. So trilokinumab, the brand name is Adbri, has recently been approved for atopic dermatitis in people age 18 and up. We talked about the clinical trials that led to its approval. It looks good. Looks like uh, it's kind of like dupilumab, which, of course, we also love. And the main exciting part, in my opinion, that came out of that trial was that some patients were able to maintain clearance even off the drug entirely, which is pretty awesome. We also talked about a trial that pitted abrocitinib versus dupilumab for atopic dermatitis. Pretty gutsy. Abrocitinib, of course, is a JAK inhibitor, also recently approved for age 12 and up for atopic dermatitis for moderate to severe stuff. It's a pill versus a shot, and they both worked quite similarly. So I think my main takeaway was that they're both really good. They're both efficacious. Abrocitinib, the JAK inhibitors, are probably not quite as safe as the AL4-13 inhibitors. And to further talk about that, we discussed an editorial in the JAD about JAK inhibitor risks and the oral surveillance study, which talked about some risks in JAK inhibitors when you compared them against TNF inhibitors in a very specific population. They were talking about how that might relate to our patients. Spoilers, I don't think it does for the most part, but there you have it. Very cool. On to episode 74. Our first article was vaccine-related eruption of papules and plaques, and this talked about the skin eruptions, which were not that common, but did present with the vaccines to the COVID virus. And the um, clinical range of presentation was robust papules with overlying crust to pityriasis roseal-like eruption. I've seen a number of those. Some of them are atypical, like an inverse PR. Um, pink papules with fine scales. They proposed the acronym VREP for these vaccine-related eruption of papules and plaques for this spectrum. Importantly, other in fact, other patterns included bolus pemphigoid-like, dermal hypersensitivity, herpes zoster-like in planus perineal urticarial neutrophilic dermatosis, or leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And of course, the delayed large local reactions a lot of us experienced with a ro- kind of warm, hot shoulder. We had our second part of the Allergen Alternatives uh, mini-series here discussing metal alternatives. 
Um, then we talked about how the patients tend to prefer young prompt dermatologists. So we looked at an article looking at survey data over different dermatology providers. They looked at over 38,000 online reviews. They found no difference in male and female overall ratings, but female providers were more likely to have positive comments about time spent with patients. New providers got the highest overall promptness and time spent with patients ratings, which makes sense. Most of us who have started our clinical practice know that when you're a new provider, you don't have as big of a patient load. So you have more time to spend with each patient. And of course, it's easier to run on time when you have fewer patients. As your practice is active over a period of time, you accumulate more patients, you're busier, which does make it harder to spend as much time with each individual patient and also might potentially make you a little bit behind in clinic sometimes. Medium experienced providers got the highest scores in bedside manner and accurate diagnosis, which makes sense. Their experience has afforded them the ability to be both more accurate and potentially time to hone their clinical skills. The interesting part of this article came forward with the fact that advanced providers scored the lowest across all categories. I think that this might have multiple reasons, um, one of them being that advanced providers have been through multiple different practice um, sort of paradigm shifts. So if somebody is a more experienced advanced provider, they probably started practicing dermatology in the era of paper charts um, when there were also fewer um, limitations and demands on, on the time of the physician, as well as you know patient expectations were also different. So the skill set that the advanced providers developed in the sort of environment they grew up in is not potentially as adaptive as the environment current trainees are growing up in where we focus more on patient experience. Um, the computer literacy is generally better in more um, junior providers versus more advanced ones. So I think that that might have something to do with that, but it was very interesting. We looked at the use of abetacept for morphia. Remember, abetacept is a fusion protein that has the FC region of IgG1 fused to the extracellular domain of CTLA-4. So abetacept was found in this study to be able to help improve the condition of lichen sclerosis in a double-blind placebo sorry, in a, um, sorry, they recommended a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, but this particular trial was able to show benefit in patients. The next article is the doctor-patient relationship is important. Um, this was actually an excerpt from a book, and it utilized the author's personal experience as a professional as well as a mother of two children to discuss how to help improve patient and physician relationship. They talk about using the psychological lens to help kind of focus the visit and ensure that the patient feels and seen and heard, including habits like visual analysis of body language, auditory information, tone, um, logical emotion perception, things that help the patients to feel like you're really there for them. We looked at TCA peels for acanthosis nigricans. In the study, they had physician-controlled 15% TCA peels that decreased papillomatosis and corneal compaction in the histology of acanthosis nigricans patients one month after therapy, but this study was somewhat limited due to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. We had part three of our mini-series, allergen alternatives, rubber, and plants. And then we also looked at the tacrolimus fish and spit article, um, where we found Found that tacrolimus was a convenient treatment where patients would dissolve the tacrolimus capsule, make a solution, and use that to swish and spit for complex aptosis. We looked at the role of fibroblasts in atopic dermatitis, and we found that they are also potentially playing a role that might be a therapeutic target. Um, specifically, CCL11 was an interesting um, marker that was upregulated in the human dermal fibroblasts, and that might potentially be a target of therapy. Uh, then we also looked at 
nicotinamide for non-melanoma skin cancer prevention and discussed the fact that it was able to help reduce basal cell carcinomas and squamous squamous cell carcinomas, but does have an increased risk of digestive adverse effects and proponed that it should be considered in healthy patients or organ transplant patients with a history of skin cancer, especially basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma. I do recommend a lot of nicotinamide in my practice. You do have to look at potential drug interactions, but I do think it's a good adjuvant medication, and a lot of patients appreciate that provision of a somewhat natural and supportive therapy. Michelle, you just ran two episodes right together. I did, sorry. You started talking about episode 74 and you skipped right past episode 75 to talk about episode 76. I got so excited. I'm so sorry. Here, you do the next two and I'll do the last one. So uh, if you were interested in any of those, episode 76 is the one with TCA peels for acanthosis nigricans, allergen alternatives, rubbers and plants, fibroblasts for atopic dermatitis, the tacrolima swish and spit, and nicotinamide. Those are all from episode 76. Episode 75 was a little bit shorter than our normal episodes because I think you had to go to the airport or something. So maybe that's why you skipped past it. Aha, makes sense. But we did discuss a drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome or DRESS that can lead to autoimmune disease. And these researchers had found several ways to predict which patients were more at risk for eventually developing autoimmune disease, though it usually didn't happen for many years later. The most important seeming to be quick rebound of your immune system after the initial subacute phase of dress. So increase in your immunoglobulin level was correlated with an increased risk for developing autoimmune disease later. We had a very nice long article on trichoscopy, one of Michelle's <laughs> favorite things that talked about the sensitivity and specificity of various findings in various forms of alopecia. It's got some great tables and diagrams in there as well. And then also allergen alternatives. We talked about textiles and adhesives. That article, by the way, has lots of really great tables in it. So if your patient is allergic to something or other, like their shoe, then you can go on that article and find a list of shoes and figure out which one was probably going to work for your patient. And then episode 76, Michelle already talked about. So episode 77 we recorded partially in Moab because we were there for the Utah Dermatologic Society meeting. So we talked about some highlights from the AAD and from the Utah Derm Society meeting. Um, some of the highlights in particular include like deep plicating or imbrication stitches can help take tension off of a wound. There were some discussions about not specific techniques or medicines, but sort of relationship advice, like focus on the situation rather than the people because relationships last and situations pass I like and that. try to avoid being a hero necessarily because when you decide to take on the role of hero sometimes you're making somebody else a victim which can potentially be more problem than you're trying to take on here we talked about an article on autoimmune bullous disease from biologics so there are some biologic medications that seem to incite some autoimmune bullous disease so always remember to keep that in mind if you have a patient with new onset Pemphigoid or pemphigus, for example. We also had an update on an old episode. What is the best psoriasis biologic? Because back when we decided what the <laughs> best psoriasis biologic was, the prices for all these things were what they were two years ago. And so we went back for the Utah Durham meeting and looked at what the prices are now. Kind of ended up deciding that the best psoriasis biologic is either Rodalumab, if you want to deal with the REMS protocol about the suicidal thing, and remember, or, remember that its its um, trade name is Silic. So he's like, bro, look at that Silic dress. I'm dead. Get it? <laughs> it's terrible. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> or if you don't want to deal with all of that 
that deadly dress, you can talk about, or you can use Risen, Kizumab, or Skyrizzy. And <laughs> uh, we bumped off Guselkumab or Tremphia from its perch just because it's way too expensive now compared to these other medicines that are also effective. A uh, little Sky Rizzy for the win, man. And then now episode 78. Sorry about that. Um, so in episode 78, uh, we looked at first um, how people have kind of changed their perception of self due to Zoom. So I think everyone listening to this podcast probably had some Zoom experiences during the pandemic so that we could try to keep things running as best as possible. And in this article, we discussed the fact that sort of the down angle sort of up the nose shot we often get with a webcam is not a flattering angle for most people. Most people have their head tilted down, which might worsen the appearance of sagginess. And this might induce people to have facial um, appearance dissatisfaction and pursue potential therapeutic correction. Dr. Kim Nichols was our guest on that episode. She was an excellent guest, very knowledgeable. Um, she's a cosmetic dermatologist, and we were grateful to have her on the episode. Then we also looked at an article that compared timolol and propranolol to each other that found that both oral propranolol and topical timolol gave satisfactory therapeutic outcome um, for patients who had either superficial or mixed infantile hemangiomas. And so the authors recommend that that possibility be considered if you're dealing with a superficial or mixed type of hemangioma. Timolol wasn't studied in this particular paper with the deeper hemangiomas that are more bulky. Those most likely, I think, would respond better to the systemic treatment. What's your experience with that, Luke? Well, this was an episode where I tried to answer a clinical question um, because we had talked about Timolol and how maybe it doesn't help in a previous episode. And then we talked to some people at the Utah Durham meeting who said, wait a sec, maybe it does help because of these articles. So my main takeaway is the formulation. So there was this meta-analysis that we also discussed in this episode that showed the topical beta blockers, not just Timolol, seem to be as effective as propranolol and have fewer side effects, which is also what the article you just mentioned talked about. But they didn't just use the Timolol we can buy commercially, 0.5% gel-forming solution. They compounded their own Timolol 0.5% hydrogel. And also the way they used it was differently. It wasn't one to two drops twice a day, which I think is sort of standard here in the US. It was apply a thin film of this hydrogel three times a day over the whole hemangioma. And so I suspect after trying to put all this through my brain, that the reason that previous article did not show that Timolol 0.5% gel forming solution was effective was because of that issue. Just their different delivery vehicles, and different ways of using the medicine. Also, update, I called one of the local compounding pharmacies here in Salt Lake City, and they can mix up this 0.5% hydrogel for about $50 for, I forget if it's 30 grams or 45 grams or whatever. So obviously it tends to be more expensive than you know commercial coverage for the gel forming solution, but more specific for dermatology, and I suspect more actually helpful than those eye drops we've been co-opting. I like that. I like the compounded purpose-built product. I think that's great. Um, then we also looked at oral spironolactone for androgenetic alopecia. In this study, they found that oral spironolactone was effective and well-tolerated for women with androgenetic alopecia, typically used in a little bit of a higher dose, 100 to 200 milligrams. It is most effective when it's used as a combination um, with other medications, including topical minoxidil, but importantly, it did also work as monotherapy. The most commonly reported adverse effect was lightheadedness and dizziness, and then 
rarely things in the literature were described like hypotension. And then finally, we looked at the role of bile acids and their ability to inhibit IL-17. So the authors actually found that bile acids improve psoriasiform dermatitis with minimal toxicity because of direct inhibition of IL-17A and blockade of CCL-20 mediated trafficking. So potentially bile acids could be a supportive therapy as an adjuvant treatment for patients with psoriasis. In episode 79, just the last episode, we had fellow derm hero Dr. Rena Alau on to talk about one of her interests, which is skin of color. We talked about the oral surveillance study in more detail. This was a study that looked at people on a JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib, versus people on a TNF inhibitor for rheumatoid arthritis. And those on the JAK inhibitor had some more adverse outcomes, including major cardiovascular endpoints and malignancy. But this was a very specific patient population. They all had rheumatoid arthritis. They all were age 50 or over. They also were on methotrexate. They also had at least one other risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And despite all of that, the number needed to harm for treating somebody with a JAK inhibitor versus a TNF inhibitor was pretty high, like 50 to 100 over a five-year period. And remember, this is rheumatoid arthritis patients. They weren't being compared to placebo, et cetera. So I think my main takeaway is that it actually this new black box warning that has appeared on JAK inhibitors because of this study probably isn't that relevant to most of our patient population. So I guess that part's reassuring, but it's kind of annoying that it's there anyway. We talked about acetretin use in kids. If you have to do it, this study is a really good resource. It tells you how to do it, what lab work to be doing. It also tells you that it's safe. Don't have to worry about their bones, but check their vitamin D because oftentimes they have ichthyosis, which is associated with vitamin D deficiency. We talked about antihistamines and how they can help isotretinoin work. People on antihistamines plus isotretinoin seem to get better faster and have fewer side effects. I am currently on isotretinoin, and I recently added cetirizine to my regimen. So we'll see if I think it helps. And we also learned that suicidality decreases while on isotretinoin, though it all bumps up a little bit the year after you're done with isotretinoin. And also people on isotretinoin have an increased rate of psychiatric diagnoses compared with people not on isotretinoin. But if you're a silver lining kind of person like I am, the good news is that suicidality is decreased while people are on isotretinoin. And that brings us to this episode. Do you want to tell us what we learned this episode, Michelle, or shall I? You do it. I, I like I like the way you do it. All right. So we learned about longitudinal melaninicia in children and how we're just screwed because con- congenital melanocytic nevi of the nail apparatus can basically do just about everything melanomas can do. We talked about artifactual pseudochylitis, healing lips in patients with a history of psychosocial stressors and or psychiatric comorbidities. We talked about the trichoscopic Sinclair hair scale and how you can buy a fancy device or not to help quantify it more fully. And we learned that a lot of things on sunscreens are poorly understood by the public, calling for more education and or governmental reform of how sunscreens are labeled. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, guys. Thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks to medical students, Ryan Carlisle and Morgan Dykeman, who keep our social media accounts moving along. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us on our other podcast. 
So our other podcast is called SkinCast. That is a podcast for the lay people. Um, it's not necessarily intended for a professional audience. Of course, we'd love to have you listen. Um, so this is a podcast. It's about 15 minutes to 20 minutes long per episode, and we address common dermatologic problems in a way that's directed to help lay people improve the care of the skin they're in. And that is all we have got for today. Thanks again so much for joining us, and we will see you in two weeks. Peace.